Hey everyone, welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckman. Doc Searles is out today on vacation, traveling around, doing some stuff. And I am talking by myself to Kyle Rankin, who you know, because you obviously have listened to the podcast before. <laughs> but really, you should know because Kyle Rankin has done many, many other things other than this podcast, which is, you know, among them written a lot of really good uh, books that we all kind of rely on. And he works for Purism, making sure people like me don't hoist ourselves with our own guitar on our, <laughs> with our devices. I don't even know what that means. But yeah, he protects yeah. me from myself you know, to the extent that I use devices made by his company. Um, anyway, that was a little joke. So we're talking to Kyle about some stuff related to wartime frankly but global supply chain issues and security issues and anyway we're going to get into that but before we do I wanted to thank uh, our contributors and specifically our Patreon and coffee contributors Uh, we've had a few new ones lately that I wanted to highlight but in in this case I don't want to name names because for example one came from Belarus and I (laughs) and you know I that is you know related to our topic of conversation today, but I, you know, I particularly appreciate people taking the time and frankly funds to contribute to us while they are themselves in such a difficult situation. It makes me feel a lot of complicated things, but gratitude is is definitely one of them. So thank you to those of you, you know who you are. So with that in mind, I wanted to talk to Kyle today because yesterday, actually, Doc and I were both having a conversation on Floss Weekly. You may have heard Doc host Floss Weekly on over on Twit Network, and he does that every week. You should check it out if you haven't. But yesterday, we were talking about open source in wartime. And one of the things that we threw out was suddenly, you know, when, it, when a conflict like this become so visible to those of us in the Western world in particular. I think we suddenly, especially when it is a culture that we identify with so strongly, um, and that's again, a controversial topic that maybe we don't even wanna get into, but you know, I don't think it's about valuing certain people or, or countries more than others. It's, it's really more about when we see ourselves and identify so strongly, it taps into our own fears about our own security. And to that end, I, you know, I thought we would talk a little bit about how our own sort of Western perceptions of risk and our own threat models and whatnot might have changed our purchasing decisions or the way that we evaluate risk. And Kyle works for a company who makes a phone that is entirely, am I getting that correct? Entirely manufactured in the U.S.? They, we we um, can say that it's made in USA Electronics. So we make the, we, you know, manufacture the PCBA um, and the electronics in the U.S. Now there's parts of that that come from wherever. So like the case, for example, or oh, okay. um, like individual components on our site, we list wh- what comes from where. But okay. yeah, for we are we are we make the PCBA at the same facility in the U.S. that we make our Librem key, and when the when they're made, we um, put them on a cart and we wheel them, um, uh, not that not that far away, on a little cart by hand over to the 
the area where we test and then we will it from a cart to there from there to where we put them in a case and and fulfill them for customers and all of that stuff yeah so it's all very you know all so sort of self-contained and supervised which so is sort of the idea you... so you know for example we did this with with nitro key um like we used to use nitro keys for our libram key and we still do but we used to supply the get the, the supply from nitro key nitro key would manufacture the keys then ship them to us and we had you know we rebrand them but we started manufacturing a couple of years ago the libram keys in the us in the same facility and the reason wasn't that we didn't trust nitro key uh or thought that germany as a country was an untrustworthy country to manufacture things from it was more that for something that's security sensitive we felt the fewer number of hops the better because every time something changes hands between one person and another there's an opportunity for something bad to happen and so the the more we could reduce that supply chain and have more of that supply chain under our direct supervision the better you know so even if and even if the two you know, let's say even if, if nitro key and purism are trustworthy, but then it still has to go through the mail uh, to get between us, you know, that's all of those little links in the chain are things that can either be attacked or disrupted um, for geopolitical reasons or for um, pandemic reasons. And so we thought it's it's wise to get it as short as possible. And and the same thing, the same holds true for the Libra 5 USA. The, the goal there um, is to keep uh, the supply chain as as much as we can under our control and under our direct supervision and reduce the number of hops. Uh, we also get a lot of times we will have people, especially people from Europe that will um, say, yeah, but if I want to trust it, I would want it to be made in Europe instead, for instance, like what if I don't trust the US and our essentially Fair. our statement for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, I can understand that. I typically say two things to that one um, there's, there are more safeguards being subject to U.S. domestic policy than being subject to U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and there mm -hmm. are, so my first thing is there are at least rules about what say the NSA or other three-letter governments are allowed to do to U.S. citizens on U.S. soil um, compared to what they're allowed to do um, to foreign citizens in a foreign country and a foreign company. So there's, that's one thing. The second thing is, uh, I usually say is to me, it's, it's not so much, it's not as much about where it's made exactly uh, as that it's under, that the hops are shortened and the supply chain is, has shrunk. You've removed links in the chain so that we can manufacture something and then in that same area, put it on a cart and wheel it over somewhere else and then do some work on it and wheel it over somewhere else, that kind of thing. Like that, that, that being so close together means that there's fewer opportunities for bad things to happen, I guess. And, and just hearing you just describe that, it, it's funny because you're a human <laughs> who I know and trust and that you are not some faceless corporation, Apple, for example, <laughs> or not that there's anything wrong, but, but it, it, there is a definite, let's say, warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that somebody you trust is overseeing very carefully um, the manufacture of a device that's so personal and important on, but on the other hand, it's obviously very expensive. And, you know, you, one would assume that you'd have to have a pretty good reason for needing or wanting this device. And I'm wondering if you think that more people are, I guess, increasingly aware of supply chain issues, supply chain, supply chain security issues in particular, when we are in a time of war. I mean, we are all a little, 
wherever you you fall on the paranoia spectrum, you're um, a little bit heightened. Your your awareness of of, of risk is heightened right now, I think. And I just wonder if you see that translating into demand. Well, I, I think what it does is similar to what the pandemic did when there were initial supply chain disruptions for anything from toilet paper to, mm-hmm. to semiconductors to cars. Uh, what, what it caused people to remember is that things come from somewhere mm-hmm. and that somewhere can be disrupted. That, that's a possi- that it's not just magically items appear when you want them, and, but that there's this entire infrastructure behind it that causes it to happen. And it's caused, in, in particular in this case, yeah, I think you have people that are thinking not just, I mean, one, the hardware supply chain, they're thinking uh, there are some people that um, order, for example, the Libra 5 USA in particular, are getting it to, to, for patriotic reasons. We, so we have, we have a number of customers that get our products for different reasons. So some people get that product in particular for patriotic reasons. They want to support uh, manufacturing in their own country, that sort of thing. Other people do it for supply chain security reasons. They either, perhaps those people distrust China. Um, we get that feedback sometimes from people or, or other people simply want um, a tighter supply chain or have more you know, stricter, or, or like stricter or separate auditing of the supply chain, which we do for, some, for the parts that go into Lean5 mm-hmm. USA. Um, other people simply want um, so to support what we're doing. Uh, and like and like the extra security that goes with that, um, but yeah, we there's I think people are not, are being more aware not just of hardware supply chain security but software supply chain security. We also get a lot of mm. people that are getting uh, what we're interested who who order things from us because it's all auditable. You know yeah. they they are concerned. Some of we have I mean people order things from us for all kinds of reasons, but. Um, from the supply chain perspective, people, if, if people are concerned about um, cyber attacks or things like that, just because they're reading the news and a lot of the news um, and threats in the news end up being very overblown, of course, um, and sort of sensationalized, but all mm-hmm. the same, if you're concerned that there may be some future day, just like, for example, potentially concerns about imminent nuclear war might be overblown, uh, it still causes people to think, yeah, but what would I do in case yeah. it isn't overblown, you know? Um, and so, you have a lot of people saying, yeah, perhaps today, um, I don't need to be concerned about, you know, this, some sort of cyber war front, um, ha- cross- crisscrossing with the home front, but maybe, but what if I did tomorrow or, you know, mm-hmm. so people are, people are more assured, I guess, is, the, is what I would say. There's a lot of people that order things from us and order extra services from us, for example, for peace of mind. Like I, I get a surprising number of anti-interdiction orders mm-hmm. um, as a percentage of the orders that we get. And same with Pure Boot, which is like a tamper evident firmware mm-hmm. because people, most of the people when I, cause I do an interview with each person that does an anti-interdiction order to find out what their threats are. So I make sure I'm giving good recommendations and advice uh, for them. And a large number of the people that order things like that from us are just tell me I don't face any particular threats. I, if I'm just going to summarize, I would, they would say, there's no particular threat I'm facing I'm concerned about. I just want peace of mind that when I get this computer, it hasn't been tampered with. And I think a lot of people in general are looking for that peace of mind right now uh, when they're getting products. You know, they, they want to, they, they want to at least start from a place of knowing that it's not 
either spying on them or it's not doesn't already have it's not hasn't already been hacked there's things like that yeah and to be fair you know people people who um should be worried about certain threats maybe aren't aware of them <laughs> so hey you might as well cover your bases um but yeah i uh you know I, I appreciate that you mentioned software supply chain since we were we were having a conversation recently about uh, about well the importance of, of that and about how maybe certain communities don't have the best reputation. <laughs> so well, I, mean, uh, I mean, for instance, well, I'll, I'll just come out and say it. So there was this, there was an article that that I think we both read um, that uh, there was an npm package described as um, protest wear, which is something I guess I had never noticed being used before. Uh, anyway, so this uh, fun little piece of software read people's IP addresses and if they were in, I guess, Russia or Belarus, uh, this um, it started deleting data, <laughs> which is, well, that's rude. Anyway, <laughs> so it does not make me feel good about, um, that sort of thing uh, being out there and and depending on a package that might insert something like that. Uh, regardless of how you feel about what's going on, and I think people pretty universally feel are supporting Ukraine and are quite angry about what's going on in, in Russia. But that said, you know, I don't think this is the way. Anyway, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, so a, a, a couple, like one, that's it's just it's a horrible thing to to do even if you're if you think that you're doing um right. doing it for the right reasons is to taint your own code to then sabotage certain like intentionally put a logic bomb in it essentially um because there's all kind it's there's all kinds of uh, people that you will hurt with that uh that you weren't intending to i mean you could see for example like the fact that stuxnet was supposed to be highly targeted just for um Iranian centrifuges essentially, but then got out of control and started infecting all kinds of other things, you know, mm -hmm. and these sorts of things have a way of getting out of hand. So that's, I mean, that's one thing, but the second thing is that there's, it harms uh, trust overall in that platform. And it's not like in, it's not like node has a great track record in particular NPM with uh, supply chain security. There's been all kinds of issues uh, that crop up there if you just look for news about NPM and, and the supply chain, there's all these issues where uh, security, intentional security bugs or other things have, have cropped up or people have removed their, they've removed their critical library from Node in protest or something and then bricked all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, it, so there's already not a great, it's already kind of like the wild west there. And this isn't helping with that reputation. It's it, it's almost as like I'm not saying that you couldn't see this in other in in other ecosystems, but it seems like this kind of thing. There's one. There's fewer safeguards to in this ecosystem to stop that kind of thing, and two, there seems to be at least slightly more of a tolerance for that kind of behavior. You know, I don't know why that is, I and mean, maybe it's just the way that the tools are set up that there's more of a sense of it being looser about that sort of thing. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that think that's a feature. Um, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't help. Uh, it doesn't help the overall. It doesn't help the overall ecosystem. It doesn't really help. I wouldn't think Node developers. 
Um, and it certainly doesn't help anyone, the reputation of the platform. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, oh, but you know, one other thing about that though, is at, at first when I thought about it, I was like, wow, this also has the potential to really harm free software in general, because people are thinking, oh, all you need is one activist developer in free mm -hmm. software that decides to do a thing. And then they will, could go and deploy all the software, um, that is has a logic bomb in it, for instance. But then I realized, wait, well, but the, another news article I, I read this week talked about how um, all of these places are advising companies to remove Kaspersky antivirus oh, from yeah. and Kaspersky products from their computers, mm -hmm. not because of a particular threat uh, that they know or or because they believe it's been backdoored, but simply because of the threat that it could that they could be coerced. Mm -hmm to do yeah. that by the Russian government, right? And so sort of preemptively removing that sort of thing. And so what I realized, you know, kind of put those two things together and I realized, well, no, but the thing about free software is that this person did this, but it's all public. We saw that it happened. Everyone yeah. saw that it happened. Everybody could, has a something, that, something they can do about it. They could fork the library, remove that bit of nasty code um, and use this other thing instead. They can see that it happened is the other thing like it didn't happen silently didn't get silently deployed right. you know the, the the power of the fact that free software has an auditable public supply chain means that you can see all this stuff when it happens yeah be careful when you upgrade <laughs> yeah i uh yeah i did i mean yeah it's not it's not an approach that i agree with but you know this is such a you know it's such a difficult, difficult time, right? And um, I don't know, something that I kind of glossed over in, in our intro is that, you know, there's a lot of criticism for people who uh, sort of treat this conflict war, well, it's a war, um, a little bit differently than wars in other areas of the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Because there's this perception that somehow, I guess we, we think that um, you know, the Ukrainian lives are inherently more valuable than, than others, which I don't think is the case. I think it's just, it's so much more difficult. I mean, it could be the case for, for some, it's certainly not for me. Um, but I think it is more difficult for us because we, you know, we, we know people who work with people in those areas. We, we are probably both part of communities who have a lot of rep representation in those areas. Whereas, you know, I don't know anybody in the Syrian Drupal community, for example. Like I, it's it's a different, it's such a different experience when when you're seeing people who you have a more direct connection with, uh, you know, under such great th grave threat. I mean, literally, you know, their lives are in danger right now, and it's um, and I, I wonder if if that is fueling. A little bit more i wouldn't call it hysteria but um you know we talked about some slight sensationalist headlines and i wonder if that's i don't know i wonder if you think that's part of it no i'm not necessarily i mean i what you're saying is kind of can be summarized to me with people just sort of naturally with subconsciously without thinking about it have an easier time empathizing with people who are like them uh, yeah, absolutely. Whether that's um, race, which in some cases the reaction and the reaction that the, that 
um, a lot of people have to what's happening in Ukraine could be triggered by, could be because of race or similarities in there, but off, but sometimes it's also class. So for instance, I mean, to, to dovetail with the, the Syrian conflict, there's a, there is a mental image that people have when they hear the word refugee. Mm, um, and I noticed during the Syrian conflict, for instance, how many people's minds were blown when they were when they found out about refugees coming from Syria who were normal everyday professional white collar mm -hmm. uh, employees like everybody else and they're sitting there with their smartphone doing normal you know western stuff right. and I think that's you know and that's more of like a class thing I think it's more yeah. it's more triggered by yeah. class than I think race but there's a sin but it also is an empathy thing you're like well that's like me I would be concerned if I were if I had to leave my home, you know, I would have my laptop and yeah. I would have my phone and I would be doing, and it's like, oh, they have the same sort of thing. It's not, it's not just it. Well, it's not necessarily simply just some indiscriminate stereotype of a poor refugee who, mm -hmm. you know, like the poor in general or something like that, which some people, again, have these classes senses about that. It just, so um, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's challenging for a lot of people to, it's, it's challenging to see those things, like see why you have empathy for one group versus the other. Yeah. Um, it's even more challenging to change. To after, if you can, if you can even recognize it, it's even more challenging to do something Absolutely. about it. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I think in particular for me, one of the moments where I was really like, oh my god. Um, I mean, aside from the things like you know, this is I wore on Twitter, you know, which is kind of new, I guess. Um, it was, you know, when people are posting things like, oh, went to the ATM and here's the message that, you know, I can't get any money. And like, what would you do if that happened to you? You're trying to escape and you don't have access and you, you identify with their day-to-day -day lives a lot more. But the one that really got me was a photo, I think it was on LinkedIn or something. And it was a photo of all these people in camouflage, you know, full like battle gear. And it was a group of software engineers. So it's like literally people who, whose lives on, on a normal day are exactly the same as mine. And now tomorrow, well, what if I had to gear up in camo and, and carry a very big gun and, and, and worry about whether or not I was going to die? So, yeah. So I think that's part of it. I mean, it, it's like such a direct identification with these people there, you know, literally quite exactly like me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it just, it's me. just, it's naturally easy for easier for someone to empathize uh, with someone who's similar to you because you're mm -hmm. more likely if you see, like, if you watch someone on, television where you read a novel or you or you watch a movie and there's a character in that that work of fiction that is similar to you you will find yourself caring un yeah. subconsciously caring more about what happens to them and conversely you know if you see a lot of people that will critique works like works of fiction they will often a common thread you might hear is well I didn't identify with the character and what they're really saying is that person wasn't like me and so I had a hard time caring what happened to this person that didn't remind me of myself, essentially. Yeah. And why is this relevant? Of course, why do I bring this up? And that, I think part of it is, is, you know, we talked about this sort of um, idea of security prepper mentality where, you know, the, and I think that's, it's related to how threatened we feel at a visceral level at any given time. Uh, I think there's a direct correlation between that and, you know, the, the number of, rather sensationalist headlines that you see or or the the ways in which you know our fear can get extra creative and wonder about the ways that that we need to 
digitally protect ourselves. I, I mentioned this only because I, I referenced uh, earlier, I referenced an article, I think it was in Wired about, you know, net, uh, food chain supply, cyber attacks. And I was like, oh, great. Yeah, what next? <laughs> and may, whether or not it's a real threat or not, it, it's still uh, something that we all kind of um, viscerally react to. Yeah, I think the, the best article I read um, along those lines this week was by uh, Kim Zetter, who has one is an excellent journalist and as a result has really good contacts with experts who actually know things. I mean, and that's also part of that is just if you're a really good journalist, have a have a way of filtering out the people that know what they talk, what they're talking about versus people that don't. Um, and so uh, Kim had an article in Politico that was talking about about uh, cyber warfare and, and, and all of these concerns and that people are having. And essentially, like the, I think the, the sub headline was not the time to go poking around. Essentially, she was talking to a lot of uh, national security mm. folks about this pending threat. And are, are all these things happening in the cybers? And is, is Russia going to kill um, some sort of U.S. supply chain that does X, Y, Z and turn off the power and that sort of thing? And the consensus seemed to be, no, everyone's that's all of that is so escalatory that everyone is being particularly sensitive to not do anything that could be that could be seen as escalating the conflict in some other new domain. So to the point of saying uh, people who already have hacked something and already have command and control servers there, okay, that's fine. But there's sort of like, let's not expand that right now. Everyone just sort of stay where they are essentially and don't do anything. And don't make anything worse because there's a sense that if one if one group does a thing, uh, then the other group would feel an obligated to respond in kind, and it's just sort of like you have this ratcheting up of of escalation. So maybe you didn't go after a power plant, but you went after you know like that's why it was such a big deal um, not that long ago when that that uh, oil refinery that pipeline was shut down, mm-hmm. um, even though the pipeline itself wasn't hacked. You know, it was the billing system that was hacked. Um, so they shut down the oil because they couldn't sell it uh, or they couldn't get the money for it, essentially, because the billing system was shut down. All the same, they, that ratcheted tensions up because it was close enough to shutting down the energy supply of, of a country or part of the energy supply that, it, that you know, the Russian government shut it went in and helped shut it down, essentially. You know, and so I think a lot of the concerns about I, I, there's a balance with all of this. One, it's never a bad idea to to be thoughtful and careful about your security. <laughs> you know, so it's not like you're only going to get hacked now because Russia's at war with Ukraine. You know, you were you were just as likely to be hacked uh, as a company, you know, two months ago, uh, right. and be used for ransomware. Right? Uh, all of that stuff is still happening. In fact, you could argue that there's a potential that some of that threat has been disrupted by this conflict and and um but yeah so to me it's it's sort of like you were saying a lot of the things that are happening are causing people to be more concerned about disaster preparedness and i think they both sort of go hand in hand because to me it's good to be prepared uh for a disaster or for a security threat anyway you know, like the the, yeah. the effort spent to secure your systems or have have a system that um, you can audit, or to have a pantry of food that could that could supply you with some food for a week or two, or maybe longer, 
like all of that is sensible stuff you'd want to have anyway, because not simply because of some uh, really extreme threat. I mean, it's very easy and, and people in the security industry just have a tendency to go as far into the movie spy threat as possible, partially, I think, because it's fun to imagine. Yeah. Also, uh, but it there's all kinds of normal everyday things that you're saving yourself from that maybe aren't as extreme, but are that by doing basic precautions and not extreme spy level precautions, just like with preparing for disasters, we're not talking necessarily get a bunker and fill it full of two years worth of supplies of food and have all this stuff ready to go or whatever. Um, But pretty much every, at least in the U.S., every region of the country, there's some kind of natural disaster or some sort of disaster that can cause you to be without power and maybe water uh, for a week or two. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that happens here. Yeah, it happens here too. You know, in, in my in my case, it's earthquakes and wildfires. Different places, it's it's hurricanes, hurricanes or tornadoes or, or freezes, <laughs> freezes and winter storms, all that sort of thing. And so you could be like, well, I need to do all, I need to get potassium iodide in case you know there's some sort of nuclear fallout or whatever. And, and if you, that makes you feel good, then I guess go ahead and do that. But to me, it's I I, I approach these sorts of things and I approach security the same way of. Uh, try to try to take steps that improve your overall situation against the most threats, the most risk that you can do. So instead of do, doing some really uh, sophisticated, uh, complicated thing that only solves one sort of high stakes, low, low probability problem, I suppose. So, you know, for example, having a, a kill switch on my camera is pretty handy just because I know I can always have it off. Not strictly just for, I mean, it, it not only benefits me from being concerned about someone actually hacking my computer and doing all this stuff, but it protects me from, you know, just making sure it's off when I don't want it to be on, you know? Um, Same thing goes with, I mean, I go to extreme precautions by using cubes and isolating all these documents. And on one hand, that's useful for hacking, but on the other hand, it's just practically speaking, kind of useful to make sure I don't accidentally copy and paste something sensitive into something that's not sensitive. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but, uh, but going back to something more useful, I think for, for average folks who aren't going to necessarily be installing cubes or doing all this stuff. Yeah. Normal disasters happen. Everyone faces realistic, normal risks of things that happen every so often. And maybe they, maybe the tornado jumps over your house this time, or maybe next time it doesn't, maybe the earthquake is on a different fault line, or maybe the winter storm or the hurricane misses you or doesn't, but there's basic stuff that benefits you, uh, that you can do, uh, that benefits you regardless, you know, like doing things like maybe it's a good time to have a second factor in your passwords. Maybe it's a good time if you're not using one to you start using a password manager and using better passwords. All of those things benefit you whether or not another country is at war with someone, you know, they benefit you every day because there's normal threats that people face every day. Do you think that that a lot of the anti-encryption messaging might get toned down a bit as a result of heightened awareness? I would, the reason I, I mentioned that, I saw in passing, I saw some reference to Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, and I remembered that she was criticized for um, expressing concern about encryption being a way for 
uh, governments, somebody, you know, entities of whatever sort to uh, avoid taking responsibility for insert concern, you know, whatever it is. Oh, well, the, the concern is that somebody can say, oh, well, we, it's, you know, it's not our problem. It was encrypted. We, you know, we can't monitor it. And she was criticized for that. And, and which made me, you know, reminded me of a lot of, there's a lot of just kind of anti-encryption messaging, especially from politicians and governments and and whatnot. And I just wonder if this is one of those things where it's a reminder of why <laughs> I need to be careful with that. Do you think anyone will notice or you think it will be the, the, you know, the, that sort of messaging will stay on course? I think for the most part, there are people on that side of the debate that are pretty entrenched in what the, how they feel about it. There are people that are convinced that uh, without, in, within, without a backdoor to encryption, that that crime will flourish and the worst possible crime you can imagine, um, it will be aided and abetted by that. Yeah. Uh, so Putin I think you'll helping have to, Putin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or something. That, I don't know. Well, that, well, that's the thing is one thing that this does is it provides a counterpoint, a use case for a legitimate and use case that people can understand the value of, of using encryption where you have someone under an authority authoritarian regime who is cracking down on dissent and who is restricting the flow of information and people find value in being able to send encrypted messages and uh, browse the internet in an anonymous way and being able to access websites and information in an anonymous way. Uh, so things like, for example, Tor, which you would, if you talk to some people about Tor, they would say, is that the dark web thing where all the, the all the crimes thing. happen? You know, uh, but here so you have a legitimate use case for that sort of thing. And all of the cloak and dagger type like bridge relays and all the stuff that sometimes you need to do with Tor in these kinds of regimes, because you have, you know, if all of your information, if you're within a country that has this firewall around you that you can't see what's actually going on in the world, um, having some avenue to do to see what's going on is pretty valuable. Uh, if you have, and if we go over to Ukraine and you have a lot of people using things like um, like Telegram to send not quite so secure messages just because that's what people were used to doing. If, if everyone's seeing stories like that and realizing, well, maybe I should change what messenger I'm using um, or start working down that road because it's nice to have uh, safe communications, maybe I should install something like Signal and use that instead since, and get my friends to do so. I've seen a lot of adoption, just personally, of Signal in the last, well, since the invasion of Ukraine, frankly. I don't know if it's related, possibly not at all, but I've seen a ton of that annoying feature, you know, when Signal when lets you know when anybody in your uh, contact signs up. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of it, surprisingly. Yeah, Moxie seemed to think that there's a correlation. He posted a link, I think, in his, on his, uh, his Twitter feed to some graph. He posted a graph that showed mm. this giant uptick in adoption. Um, I can see a, a huge uh, uptick in adoption in those areas of the world or even anywhere else in Europe, but these are just kind of <laughs> regular old, you know, Americans and suddenly they're signing up for Signal and I thought that was interesting. It's, it's definitely, I think, increasing awareness of that sort yeah. of thing. Well, and that's the thing is, the thing about encryption backdoors is the, peop the proponents of it like to pitch it as, yeah, but only the good guys have the keys. And everyone in security realizes that's not true. Uh -huh. You know, that, yeah, there's no, that's, that's not a thing. There's no such thing. <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as that, right? And so 
any so having an encryption backdoor in something simply means if you are now at, if you are now at war with another government uh, who also has skilled hackers that they will then unleash their ability their knowledge of that backdoor get access to the keys for that backdoor and use that backdoor you know there's there's no such thing as a backdoor that only the good guys have access to uh, and when the stakes are war, for instance, uh, then yeah, it makes it very clear why that's a bad idea. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we've talked a lot about war. Maybe we should switch gears back to something more fun and you can tell us more about um, gadgets. <laughs> uh, tell me why I need one of these really cool phones that I still don't have, even though I totally thought I would have one by now. I'm not even sure. I think maybe because I never go on, go anywhere because of COVID. <laughs> like a mobile <laughs> device is somehow less relevant in my life. It's funny. Um, but I mean, so for me, I, I actually recently wrote a blog post about this, how I tried this personal experiment where, uh, because the leap from five has all of my Linux applications that would want to use anyway on a laptop and my personal needs for my personal laptop are not that extreme. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I decided I I would try an experiment where I would take my leap from five dock it to a laptop dock. And which is uh, for people who aren't aware of what these things are, it looks like a laptop, but what it is, is just a screen, a keyboard, a mouse, and a battery. It has no CPU, no real intelligence of its own other than the chips that make this thing work. You dock a phone to it and it, all of the applications are running on the phone. They just get displayed on the screen. The keyboard and mouse are connected to the the phone. So for all intents and purposes, you have basically a, a two screen laptop. So I have a big screen and then I have the little phone screen. So I've been trying for the last year an experiment where I realized my personal computer, I, I just do very basic things with it. I write articles sometimes, I check my email, I watch videos, podcasts, um, things like that. Re, re, browse the web, social media, very basic, straightforward things that my phone does perfectly fine. Uh, and so I thought, well, will this work? And I, it's been a year now and I don't see myself going back. I've, it's, what's, it's been really interesting working this way. What I found over time is like having all of the data that you need in this personal computer and having it fit in your pocket and then realizing like this will happen sometimes where I'm working on a reply, like in a chat, you know, so I'm chatting with someone and I realize, wait, you know, I hate thumb typing. I, I just, I've never liked it. Um, I'm such a much faster typist on a real keyboard that I realized I'm going to, my reply is a few sentences long. This is a pain. I don't really want to type this all the way out with my thumbs, but I'm sitting right next to a laptop dock. So I will dock my phone. The same app is running. It doesn't have to close down or shut down. It's still running. I just drag it over to the bigger screen or not and just type. Um, same thing goes if, if someone sends, if I want to watch a video and it's like, yeah, phone screen's great, but I kind of want to watch this video in a slightly bigger screen. I can just dock my laptop and, or if I want in particular, what I found is useful is multitasking. Multitasking on a phone is certainly possible. You can run a bunch of apps at the same time, but you have the problem of the screen size. You can only see one app at a time, or if you have some sort of fancy thing that puts part of, part of a video on the bottom, like a picture in picture thing. But with this, like with a dock, I, I found myself a lot just docking it because I want to watch a video, have the podcast app open, and then have another window open kind of tiled on either side of the screen where I can either browse the web while I'm watching a video or maybe uh, scan through social media or something like that. Essentially multitask. 
and do a couple of things at a time. Uh, I found it, and but it's all again, it's all powered off of the phone, which is it seems to be perfectly adequate for this kind of thing. And where do where does the performance sort of top out? Where would you hit a wall and need and say, okay, well, this isn't going to work. You actually need a you know a separate laptop. You can't just rely on your phone. For yeah. Personal. So if I did a lot of video editing, um, I mean, the thing is, all these applications work. They run, but of course, like an a, a basic ARM pro, like a, even a multi-core ARM processor. Uh, that's designed for a phone and be low power, like a low power design processor is not going to be as performant as something that's designed to do video editing, like a, a fast Intel processor um, with, with extra cores. So if I were doing video editing, for sure, I would probably want something heavier duty. Um, if you're doing a lot of compilate, like compiling a lot of big stuff, you would probably either want to, I mean, a lot of, then again, a lot of development software, you would offload that somewhere else anyway. You know, if you're doing that a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even necessarily compile, may not want to compile everything on their, even their laptop if they have a faster alternative than some sort of build farm or something, you know, depending on what you're building. Um, but yeah, if I'm doing, a, if I were, if I were a kernel developer compiling the kernel all the time uh, mm -hmm. from scratch uh, without, a, without a lot of caching, I would I, like a, an ARM, like a, a mobile ARM processor is probably not the ideal environment for that. Um, but basic, but other stuff is, is seems to be pretty good. You know, I mean, it's it's similar to like doing stuff on your phone. It's just you have a nice big screen, and the apps grow with the, the on the big screen, and you can see everything. And then you drag it back to the phone, and it's small. So even even websites, the biggest thing I found that's been useful is um, extending the amount of RAM that I have on the laptop or on the phone using something called ZRAM, which is this Linux technology that lets you have compressed. Uh, you can compress part of your actual RAM into kind of like a compressed RAM disk and you're training some CPU for RAM. So what you do is you set this up and in effect, when you were look, if you looked at my phone, it would look like it has three gigs of regular RAM and one and a half gigs of swap. Uh, the, the thing is though, that one and a half gigs of swap is actually com, com, a, kind of like a compressed file system, a compressed swap file that's in RAM. And when things are paged out to it, they get compressed on the fly uh, through the kernel transparently to the user. You don't know that it just, again, it just mm -hmm. looks like you have more swap, but it's much faster than a regular swap disk would be because it's in RAM and you're just, you're using a fast compression algorithm to, so it does, the, these blocks don't take up as much space. Um, so with that, um, one of the problems I was hitting before that is some websites are so bloated when you try to download them, when you try to load them, that they just suck up all the RAM. I mean, three gigs of RAM uh, wouldn't necessarily, with all the other things I had my computer doing, especially if I had multiple web browsers going, uh, the out of memory killer would jump up and start killing things. But once I set up ZRAM and had just a little bit extra, then it's been that plus um, getting mobile versions of sites because so many non-mobile versions of sites have all this extra nonsense that you don't really need. Uh, because they're everyone, the, it feels like the a web developer is testing this on like, the highest end MacBook that their company bought them. And <laughs> it loads fine for me. Um, and it's nice and fast on my high end MacBook. Uh, and then any other computer, you know, that's not like the very latest, you start loading these, these websites and your fan starts, you know, my, the fan starts spinning <laughs> up on your laptop and all this stuff. Funny. So, so the, the, the way, so you don't use the one that was made the USA version, right? Like on a daily I don't. Yeah, those. It's such a premium. I I feel like so. I have one that I got before we started shipping those. I've just mm -hmm. been using that. I feel like 
if I were to, I mean, I'm sure I could probably ask and get a USA version, but I feel like I'm taking that out of the hands of someone who's been waiting mm -hmm. patiently to get it. So um, yeah, I just use the regular uh, Leapify. And the hardware. For now, the, the, I mean, maybe one day that will change. The capability is roughly the same, right? It's the same. Yeah, it's, it's all the same the hardware. Same Okay. It's just made, you know, it's just the, it was manufactured in a different place with parts from a different supply chain, but the, you know, the specs are the same. Is there any particular audience who you would in particularly suggest might need such a thing? Which I mean, I know you're biased, but who cares? It's fine. Like the, um, the, no, the expensive the US, US one. Yeah. Something US that we haven't thought of. Like you can, I can think of, you know, people who work in government or, you know, I remember reading years ago that the U.S. government stopped um, using the Waldorf Astoria Hotel for official travel once it was owned by, I guess, a Chinese company because they could no longer trust it for national security reasons or something like that. And I remember thinking that, that that's what I think about when I think of your phone. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I could certainly see obvious. cases if that's, yeah, basically, anyone who's really concerned about where things come from and we sort of is from a political perspective all across the political spectrum we have we have people that are interested that would that would run the entire spectrum of political interest um from the far right to the to the far left uh because everyone's sort of concerned about where stuff comes from mm -hmm. uh so i don't i mean there's no one there's no particular audience because I feel like everyone is starting to see the value just like they did they do for food you know people mm -hmm. 20 30 years ago Grown locally. You didn't, yeah, yeah you didn't necessarily know where the fish at the fish counter of your supermarket comes from I don't know if this is true universally throughout the U.S. but at least in almost all the supermarkets I go to around here I think all of them uh, for example you go to the seafood area and it tells you where that fish what country that fish came from mm -hmm. um and the same goes for a lot of other goods like that, because people realize it's kind of useful, in particular with fish, because of, of the environment that they're in, so they tend to absorb some of that. Uh, people are that end and how they're and how um, the whole supply chain behind that fish. You know, people seem to be be concerned about that, and they're extending that now. People also are concerned about where their uh, computers come from, where their software comes from, uh, where their hardware comes from, and. For, for similar reasons, they're concerned either about, um, some people are concerned about whether these things have been tainted with maliciously. Some people are, some people don't, not necessarily concerned, but they want the peace of mind. Um, other people, uh, just like with food, want to support um, ethically, ethically made or sourced things. You know, so some mm -hmm. people maybe um, don't have a don't necessarily, aren't necessarily concerned about, let's say, whether a fish has been caught in off, off the coast of Canada versus off the coast of the Philippines necessarily, but maybe they want to support something that's closer to home or, or the same thing goes with like, if it's a USA type thing, um, where knowing that, or for example, like uh, coffee is another example of this, where there's fair trade mm -hmm. coffee yeah. and then there's regular coffee, right? There's, there's a, a growing market of consumers who care about how their stuff is made and where it's made and all of the all the processes of the supply chain, which were a black box before. Uh, and they're, they realize that by supporting um, either ethical supply chains or secure supply chains, they can see more of it in the future. If, you know, if, if no one ever bought fair trade coffee, 
you wouldn't see a lot of fair trade coffee anymore. You know, it would, it would have appeared. Um, no one decided to pay a little bit extra to get fair trade coffee, and then it would have disappeared. But there's enough of a market to sustain it. And that's, that's true for all of these things. People realize yeah. that it ma does matter what they buy and where they spend their money, if they, that what they're, what they're buying supports the kind of future they want to see. Oh, I like that. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that's a good answer. Um, is there anything we haven't covered? <laughs> I think I, you know, I think I went into this just sort of gen generally wanting to talk about, about um, a few issues and I think we hit them all. Well, um, why don't we talk about your disaster, disaster preparedness? Because you live in an area, if I'm not oh, mistaken, yeah. that sees its fair share yep. of hurricanes and other other issues. So what kinds of stuff do you do to stay safe? And sure, yeah. On so, my end? Um, okay, so this is the, the advice that I gave somebody who had recently moved to an area that gets a lot of hurricanes. The one thing that people forget is you really need to have like a camping stove. You need to have, and I mean, maybe you have gas in your house, maybe you don't like a gas stove. Um, and either way, you really need to make sure you have like a little portable propane stove. That's number one. Two, the other thing I always have, I have some sort of um, backup battery, a really robust <laughs> backup battery system for charging all the things. But, you know, I always, in, you know, in, in our hall have a power supply that's constantly charged and could charge probably my laptop a few times and my phone a few times. Um, the other thing I, I keep around the house various like kind of like plug-in flashlights that will come on if the power goes out because mm -hmm. I mean I hate to admit it's not even it's not all that infrequent <laughs> I mean, to have a temporary powder power outage where I am um, it's usually not very long and I'm pretty lucky I've been like when people where I live lost power for three weeks because of a hurricane I never lost power or I lost power for a couple hours and it came back on but then when when the freeze happened the big Texas freeze, we, we, it was miserable. Oh, so bad here. Um, you know, we would have power for a few hours a day, you know, long enough to charge up some devices and, you know, run the heat to warm up the house a little bit. <laughs> and then it was just gone. <laughs> and, you know, we're good. I'm lucky we have a gas stove. But, but yeah, those are the big ones is you just, you always have to have, you have to think about having backup power. A lot of people have generators. I don't because I don't, I don't know. I have never, I've never, uh, I've never thought I needed to go that far, but, uh, but yeah, always keep your car fueled. Always, you know, it, it's also floods. You don't even have to have a hurricane. It floods here so frequently that you, they were, I am constantly aware of stuff like that. I check the weather before I go anywhere. Awesome. Yeah. I'm on, on my end, the threats I'm particularly dealing with are earthquake um, storms that knock out power, mm -hmm. not that we get very many storms, but our infrastructure is so bad that storms that, that everyone else would sort of shrug off cause us to lose power. Um, and then finally wildfires, which have been crazy. Mm -hmm. So I'm in California and in an area that has seen every single year has seen a wildfire where, so the thing I have to deal with, and I'm sure a lot of people that, that are facing hurricanes have to face the same thing, which is you have to both prepare for a disaster that where you're going to stay put and disaster mm -hmm. where you have to leave and how do you balance both of those because i know a lot not everyone decides to ride out hurricanes you know depending right. on the strength yeah. you know in certain um, areas, you and, really and, do and same leave. here you know in some cases we were compelled to leave we must leave and must mm -hmm. evacuate it in case of a wildfire so a lot of my disaster preparedness strategy is sort of centers on my camper van 
which I have anyway. I didn't get it for disaster preparedness. I got it because I wanted to go drive around in a van and go camping in various places and just an incredibly convenient way to do that sort of thing. It's a road trips are just so much better with doing it in a camper van. Uh, so I had it for that, but I realized it is a self-contained little house on wheels. So I have, I have um, a toilet, I have beds, I have refrigerator, I have, I can cook, I can take a shower, um, I have fresh water. Uh, all of that sort of thing is sort of, it's already self-contained like that um, as it is. And so what I've essentially done is I've sort of, both improve my disaster preparedness and my camping experience by investing in little things for the van here and there. So um, in addition to the built-in stove, it's nice to cook outside. For, so, so I sort of have this dual purpose where I realize in the case of a disaster, whether I have to evacuate or not, I can rely on some of the tech that's in my van uh, to help me out, uh, whether I leave or not. So uh, I have a camping stove too. Uh, both because it's handy in a disaster and because it's nice when you're camping, you don't necessarily want to camp inside or cook inside the van every time. It's nice to, to cook out on a, on a picnic table and be out in nature or whatever. Um, same with a big battery backup. I have, you know, a van needs a lot of, uh, you want to be uh, off the grid a little bit when you're camping. And so I have a big battery. I also have solar panels because we often will, um, work remotely from the van sometimes. And when you do that, you need to charge everything up and have the ability to do that. So I have a little tiny generator for the, that fits in the van uh, that's powered off of propane, little propane tanks and solar panels. And so I can charge it. So I basically have taken all of that and extended. And then of course in my house, you know, we just normally have a, a reasonably sized pantry of food and that sort of thing, just because it's economical to do it, you know, buy food sometimes in bulk and store it away. But and we have a garden that we, we preserve, uh, preserve our food. But also I had this sense of, well, I'm, what I've been trying to plan for here is the most realistic scenario here would be something that causes the power to go out for about two weeks. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable assumption that a natural, let's say an earthquake uh, that's bad enough in this area could knock out power in my town for a week or two. And what would I do in that week or two? Imagine I can't leave. Maybe it's so bad that everything's jammed up, the roads are jammed up or something and I have to be here. Do I have, one option is always to leave, get in the van, everyone get in the van and we leave. But the other, op, the other thing is, well, if I, have, if I have to be for two weeks with no power, no running water, say, yeah. uh, what, can I, you know, what can I do? How do I deal with that? And so I've been trying to, to think about, I mean, the van comes in, into play there too. You know, like I, ha I have a gas generator as well, um, but, when you start thinking about planning for an outage that long, you start realizing, well, if I actually want to want to have power for two weeks, uh, yeah. do I have enough gasoline to <laughs> fuel that? And you're like, no, but that's okay. I can go down the street. And you can't go down the street and get yeah, more not, gas not because really. <laughs> the power's out, right? And if you go to a gas yeah. station when the power's out, you're not getting gas, the you know? Pump's not gonna work. Yeah. So I had to plan for that. And so, it, but... Um, so one solution is to get barrels full of gasoline, which in some cases is you're Ill illegal certain areas. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or it's just cumbersome to do that. Or you could realize my van has a 30 gallon gas tank and is old enough that it doesn't have those anti-siphoning measures, you know, uh -huh. that modern cars do. Uh -huh. And so if I really need to, I have 30 gallons or I, I wouldn't use all of it, obviously. I need to be able to drive the van, but I have some from that that I could use along with solar panels, 
um, mm -hmm. and battery backups. All that stuff sort of combines to form a, a case where I could keep my food from spoiling, charge some gadgets, and be okay for a week or two. It's funny. I forgot to mention water, but and also food. That's that's one of those things. I you know, living where I do, I'm never without a pretty pretty extensive uh, backup supply of, of bottled water and food because it's it's just it, it's, it's the way I grew up. You know, there were a lot of really bad hurricanes here when when I was a kid, and it was just a thing you do. You always have a fully stocked pantry, and because that's just the responsible adult thing to do. Um, but the other thing, I'm actually considering. You, you mentioned solar panels. I've been considering kind of upping my uh, backup power game um because again the weather seems to be getting worse and i'm looking at a, a jackery system that has uh solar panels and mm -hmm. an even bit, bigger uh backup power supply um and i think i don't know it's kind of expensive but i i, I feel like that's gotten some good reviews by this sort of van life community um but yeah i think you know all of those things are you know again depending on where you live pretty pretty useful <laughs> Yeah, I mean, basically, so my advice was one of those, so the Jackery's the system, they have a lot of different sizes of, there's a couple in that space, there's like a Blue Eddy, and there's a couple in that space that do battery, like, so, quote unquote, solar generators, mm -hmm. and it's super valuable, even if you have a generator, like an mm -hmm. actual gas or propane generator, those things can be valuable just because being able to charge a bet, two things, one, being able to, you fuel does, you can't have infinite fuel, but the sun's out every day. Right. And so worst case scenario, you can um, if you have a bat, one of those battery banks or a couple of those solar gen one or two solar generators and you have a regular generator, you can use that regular generator to top up your solar generator pretty fast yeah. and also use solar power if you need to independently. So that's one thing. But the other thing I like when we have had some brief power outages, let's say it lasts four or five hours and we want to get a little bit of work done. So cellular network's still up, um, but yeah. we just don't have local power in our block or two, a block or two is knocked off. Having an act, like it's not enough that makes you want to break out the generator and start mm -hmm. and start it up and go through all of that stuff. One, it's loud and, and exhausting, et cetera. But two, there's, it's very convenient to have one of these solar generators that you can pick up, take inside mm -hmm. and have right next to you. Uh, instead of having extension cords going everywhere, you know, you just have this thing inside that you can put next to your desk or next to your couch or wherever, plug your laptop in for a while, charge it up and then take it over to your spouse and they can charge their laptop up in their office for a while, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, I think I think the solar, like some sort of a solar generator of, and get a nice, like a pretty good size one is definitely worth it. And enough solar, but enough solar panels too, that you could charge it um, in uh, like, four or five hours if, if possible, yeah. because that's the other thing is, you know, you can't count on having a full summer's day to charge it all the way up. And also if you're using one, how are you going to charge it? Because yeah. it, it'll drain at the same time. You have to think about that. Yeah. 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 I fully endorse. I have the small Jackery, you know, actually mm -hmm. pretty close by right now, <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> somewhere over here, just in case. But yeah, disaster according to a Texan. <laughs> which is pretty much disaster according to most people. I, fortunately, we don't, we don't have fires here, which is it's a little bit. That, see, the, thing why... is the, the fact that you have this stuff though, it having this sort of thing benefits you outside of, I have a hurricane right now or a fire burning outside or whatever, like having, like having, at least I tried to make these purchases in ways that are useful, not just during a fire. Yeah. So having 
a little solar generator, for example, can be useful if you just need to have power in a, in a, in a place that is hard to run an extension cord or inconvenient to run an extension cord, or there's all like having a well-stocked pantry is just good if you, so you don't have to go to the grocery as much, or you can get something, yeah. a good deal on something. And, you know, there's just, there's all these different benefits of. You can always things. do some impromptu cooking, but, you know, yeah, baking exactly. especially. There, you always have ingredients for, you know, chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very important. <laughs> always. There's never a time when you can't make a chocolate chip cookie if your pantry is stocked. Uh, <laughs> or pantry puttanesca. That's another favorite. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, this is my go-to, so I'll probably have to link some recipes there. Um, well, cool. I think uh, I think we've covered we've covered disaster and war and a lot of really unpleasant things, but in an upbeat way. It's such a weird thing, like talking about, you know, these very the the gravity of the situation is almost too much for most people, or it's too much for me to really grasp. I can't. I can sympathize to an extent but I really cannot put myself in the position of understanding what it would be like to be in the to be in that position right now to be under that in that much danger and so yeah. I, I I have a lot of like I don't know survivor guilt or what I don't know what the word is right now but but guilt for being over here just kind of going about my daily life when you know not having bombs dropped on me and not having you know to to run and escape from my city and possibly get blown up in the process it's just, just a, I don't know. I think everybody, you have to kind of be kind to yourself, but at the same time, realize that, you know, that you may lack the capacity to fully grasp what's going on. Well, I mean, the, to me, the, the thing to do is to try to experience gratitude yeah. and for the situation that when you're, when you're fortunate, when you're in a fortunate situation, then be grateful for being in that fortunate, fortunate situation and be empathetic to everyone who's not in that fortunate situation. Yeah, do what you can. And do what you can, yeah. Do what you can to help people that, that are less fortunate, you know, whatever that whatever that less fortunate means. And what you can is probably not malware. Yeah, probably. it's probably it's probably not hacking people whose GOIP is Russian. Um, <laughs> let's, let's, that's probably not the best way to go. Yeah. Cool. Be kind. Okay. Well, on that, that note, thank you everyone for listening to all of our, to all of our conversation and all of our awesome insights about surviving <laughs> in our own region of the world. Um, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me.